Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, welcome back to the Romaniacs podcast in the week when the wheels came off. We recorded this show on Wednesday 6th of December, the day after Theresa May solved the Irish border problem by suggesting that Northern Ireland could effectively remain within the customs union, only for the DUP, who prop up her government, to unsolve it by rejecting any arrangements which treat Northern Ireland as different from the rest of the UK. So by the time this show goes out, we might be looking at the collapse of the government and another general election, the dawn of a united Ireland, and patchwork Brexit with hard border controls around Cornwall, Scotland, Liverpool and London. Or maybe someone will have the guts to call the whole thing off and grant our Christmas wish. Also, just before we came in to record, David Davis revealed that the dog had eaten his homework and the promised impact assessments never existed, replacing it by 800 pages of what he called sectoral analysis. Also pressed on whether there had been a quantitative analysis of the cost of leaving the customs union, he suggested no, he just sort of gone with his gut. I'm Dorian Linsky. This week we'll be looking at a silver lining in the Brexit cloud as well. Public opinion polls are showing increasing majority in favour of a second referendum, and even the Labour Party seems to be coming round to the idea. Plus, Tony Blair is back in the ring yet again. Can he affect the direction of Brexit? And what's going on with the status of EU citizens in the UK? Joining me to help unscramble this week's Brexit omelette is Naomi Smith, ex-Lib Dem PPC and former chair of the Social Liberal Forum. Hi, Naomi. How are you? I'm good. Never been more grateful to the DUP. (laughs) And I think everybody's going to be grateful to the DUP because, because of your Arlene Foster. What would Arlene say in such a scenario? You mean other than Ulster says no? Uh, I think the, the phone call probably went something like this. Hello, Teresa. Arlene here. Now, listen, we might accept social divergence on issues like gay marriage and abortion, but we will not accept one iota of economic divergence from the rest of the United Kingdom. Am I making myself clear? That's no to the sodomy, but yes to the economy. <laughs> how, wh- how? Great election slogan. <laughs> Where did you get this amazing talent? Um I went to school there uh, in the 90s, so I'm officially a child of the Troubles. Ooh. So I am. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the only person on this podcast who can do a proper accent <laughs> from any country in the world. Also back on the show is our regular business expert and armchair Brexitologist, Peter Collins. Hi, Peter. Hi. 
This is well, bracing, isn't it? It, it? it is. And it all reminds me um, of some of those golden days, like the, the, the night of Norman Lamont saying we've fallen out of the ERM and having to do, what was it, controlled soundbite or something. And, of course, dear old Mrs Thatch in November 1990, uh, when she came out of the summit and she was saying, where's the microphone? Where's the microphone? It's over here. It's over here. And, you, you know, she'd lost the she'd won but lost the leadership election. And it's like history being made right in front of I, you. I love your, your kind of 90s nostalgia. Uh, this, is, this is your Blur versus Oasis. That is, it? it is, yes. <laughs> Let's meet today's special guest. Eloise Todd is the chair of Best for Britain, which fights to keep the door open to EU membership. Co-founded by Gina Miller, it started as a tactical voting initiative to back candidates who opposed extreme hard Brexit in the general election and has morphed into a think tank and pressure group making the case to stop Brexit altogether. Eloise is also on the board of the Joe Cox Foundation. Hi Eloise, welcome to Romaniacs. Hello, delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. After this week's events, do you, do you feel any more optimistic about the, the unravelling of Brexit? I do. What is strange is that it takes a year and a half to prove what was always the case. Like, you can't have a hard border in the sea and have it between North and South Island. You can't have regulatory convergence, whatever they've called it, between the UK and also Ireland. And it it sort of fascinates me and astonishes me and slightly terrifies me that we have to actually get to the point where she's having lunch with Juncker and they're almost just signing the actual deal when everyone goes... Oh, hang on a minute. It doesn't make sense. And it's like, are we going to have to go to that length on all of these issues? Or is someone going to have a quiet word in a corner and go, do you know what, love? It's, it's not happening. Can't work. Counterpoint from Ian Duncan Smith, who says that all this Irish stuff wasn't an issue. <laughs> <laughs> just wasn't an issue before. Nobody saw it coming. And it's just the Irish making mischief, which is... Hmm. Which is <laughs> yeah, nice try. And I'm worried that he might believe that. That literally this Irish stuff had not occurred to him at all. Well, John Major and Tony Blair both mentioned it during the EU referendum campaign, so uh, he just mustn't have been listening at the time. Well, that's a given. I mean, obviously it was around, but I'm just wondering, again, it's one of these things that I actually asked Julia Hartley Brewer this on Twitter, but she didn't reply, where I said, can you clear this up? Are you an idiot or a liar? Because it's one of those two. She didn't reply to that. She didn't reply. Strange. I don't know, because I think a lot of people are asking. She should have just cleared it up. (laughs) And in so many cases, I'm just like, well, what you're saying is manifestly untrue. So either you're incredibly foolish and you haven't paid attention to basic facts, or you're deliberately lying. I mean, either of those things you would think would stop somebody from being, for example, a government minister or a radio host. (laughs) Well, it's true. (laughs) But apparently not. It's like the Brexit reports, they either exist or they don't. They can't be both of those things. I think we call it constructive ambiguity, (laughs) (laughs) which is the the tactic of the year. Can you tell me a bit about how you got involved in the Joe Cox Foundation? Yes, I can. Joe was a very close friend of mine and uh, I was actually on my way to see her the day she was killed and uh, a group of us did all sorts of different things in the aftermath of her murder to um, organise and galvanise and uh, frankly find a way of uh, using our emotion and then part of that was to try and harness it and try and keep on the co- working on the causes that she really believed in whether it's women in politics whether it's Syrian refugees uh, loneliness, autism, all of those things so it's a way of trying to keep the good work up mainly by empowering people that are already working in the space rather than trying to reinvent the wheel so yeah that's how I got involved where did you work with her then how did you get to know oh, we met back in the year 2000 when we were both in our first jobs uh, in the European Parliament in Brussels uh, working as assistants 
and uh, we mainly didn't talk about politics but talked about terrible relationships and went out on the razzle-dazzle um, <laughs> back in the early noughties. It's a firm foundation for friendship, I think. It was. <laughs> Thanks, Eloise. We're talking to Eloise more throughout the show, but before we dive back into the shitstorm, here's the soothing voice of Peter <laughs> Collins with some campaign messages. Maybe a little more soothing than someone scratching their fingernails down a blackboard or next door's car alarm going off at three in the morning. But anyway, one last reminder that if you're looking for Christmas gifts for your treacherous saboteur relatives, the Romaniac's Christmas market is still just about open. There's no glue vine and Dorian is not wearing his reindeer antlers with flashing lights, not yet anyway, but we do have exclusive t-shirts and a classy Romaniac beanie hat in all sizes and two European languages, French and German. We're closing soon, but order quick and UK deliveries guaranteed by Christmas. Have a look at romaniacs.myshopify.com and if you just want to support the podcast and all of our evil schemes, remember you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Smart Romaniacs mugs, bags and t-shirts and stuff are awaiting our much-loved backers. Details of all this stuff at romaniacs.com. At the risk of plugging the competition, Jeremy Della has just designed a new T-shirt which says John and Paul and George and fuck Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> which, I, which I want very much. Indeed. Poor Ringo. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, maybe you should have voted Remain. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on our way to the studio when the David Davis news broke and like him, we haven't prepared anything. <laughs> so we're just going <laughs> to have to uh, busk it. Indeed. But it is astonishing. So as... Jeremy Corbyn pointed out at Prime Minister's Questions uh, on Wednesday, Davis, first of all, is saying, look, we've got these almost 60 sector analyses. They're almost done, he says to Parliament one minute. And then now today he um, turns up to, to the Brexit committee and says, oh, they didn't exist. Just, just because we use the word impact doesn't mean we really looked into impact. Well, so how do you do 850 pages of sectoral analysis of different bits of the UK economy and Brexit without looking at the impact? How do you do that? Does it have just like a big bit in square brackets impact to go here yeah, indeed well actually it's like all the other reports that remember that we've discussed in previous podcasts the, the other analyses of the, you know all the different issues the northern ireland issue the trade issue and all the rest what you found is that civil servants have brilliant ways of using microsoft word to pad out large numbers of pages including in one case just repeating the previous section and that's all, that, that's basically what we've got it's just nothing so Naomi, is david davis a sleeper agent planted to destroy brexit What do you have to do in this government to actually get sacked? I mean, Ian said it last week. If he'd written a book, told everyone he'd written a book and then just said his mum had read it and then he actually hadn't written a book, (laughs) you know, he'd lose all his credibility. Politics.co.uk would probably sack him. It is not clear to me just how much you have to screw up now. To be, able, you know, to, to to have to leave your post, it, it's just incredible. And it just it just looks like they're saying whatever needs to be said to get them through the six o'clock news tonight, basically, and and tomorrow morning's headlines. Even if that's digging themselves a bigger hole for the future, which is what Davis did with the first time round, you know, it's not it's not that there's been a big cover up of all these uh, detailed studies. It's not that the civil servants were told to to write glowingly optimistic, ridiculous, false figures. It's that there was a complete absence. Of of planning and it's probably a good job that Dunty isn't here because he would probably be <laughs> exploding right now and there'd be just sort of a debris for a quarter mile radius around Soho. It's the sort of bluffness of Davis isn't it? The way that he kind of reveals that he's not even like there's no sort of like embarrassment or even squirming. He it's seems just like, to almost do it. take pride in it the Davis yeah. swagger. 
Like that picture, remember the photo of him where Man he was studying. sat opposite the what, the negotiator, the EU negotiator, and they had a pile of papers. And he's like, don't need any papers. Papers are for squares. <laughs> and it's just like he seems to have found this kind of group that he thinks is going to work, where you're just like, boring. You know, let's just let's just sort of crack on. It's reckless optimism, as Ruth Davidson called it. That's what it is. Yeah. And and Hillary Benn's jaw, I don't know if you saw it, he's <clears throat> sat there chairing this thing and his jaw is, is he's almost having to scrape <coughs> it off, off the table. Even he couldn't believe what he was hearing. And well, the serious point out of all this, I mean, uh, as uh, unless things r- drastically change uh, after we finish recording, is that uh, MPs are now saying to the Speaker, well, this is surely now contempt of Parliament. And the Speaker is saying, well, I am attentive to any accusations of spe- uh, contempt of Parliament, but it's the Brexit Committee itself that has to decide. And the Brexit Committee will have to sort of write to the Speaker and say, this is contempt. It seems to me... This is completely outrageous, the way Parliament is being treated. You know, not even if this, these uh, sector analyses did exist with all the stuff unredacted, uh, the ridiculous rigmarole that all the MPs have to go to, MPs, members of Parliament, have to go through to get to see these things. Mm. It, we we're, First of all, we now need a parliamentary uprising. We need Parliament to say... What we'll do is what the US Congress does from time to time. Uh, both parties come together and pass laws that limit the powers of the executive. This is the perfect time to do it. Uh, we're already seeing a few MPs here and there having success in pushing through backbench uh, initiatives. This is the time for Parliament to say the executive has gone too far to set up a committee that has to vet all the Henry VIII powers over Brexit. And it can be done if they show a bit of courage. Not to mention the contempt that they're showing for the great British public, who apparently aren't allowed to see anything at all and well, have well, any access to the information about where this Brexit ridiculousness is going. So I think that is something that we've got to keep pushing for. These reports, assessments or the lack thereof, we need to see exactly what we're talking about. And then they've got to fill in the gaps over the next few months, uh, kicking and screaming. We need those reports from the Treasury. And there are, sorry, meanwhile, over, over in Brussels, you know, those pesky bureaucrats at the EU have published all of their <laughs> Brexit impact assessments freely available for absolutely anyone to see on their website. You know, the, the, the contrast and how dare hard Brexiteers, you know, point to them as undemocratic. As you say, we, ha- we, we need to see these. They're just very confused by what's going on over here. They're like, yes, you can read that in our uh, comments that we published back in April. It's there to see. (laughs) Sometimes I have the impression these Brits, they don't even read what we published. (laughs) They don't know what the hell is going on. Have you ever been in a situation where you're you're so embarrassed that you go through actually feeling the embarrassment (laughs) and then you're just numb and there's just like really nothing more that can happen? And I feel like this is where Britain is going. It's just that if you actually think of how Britain appears to the rest of the world... I I can't even cringe anymore. Mm. It's just like it's so debasing. Beyond humiliation. Indeed. Which was, you know, not the aim. I don't remember that being promised. (laughs) (laughs) At the time. We will take Britain beyond humiliation. (laughs) We will become the laughing stock of the world. In normal circumstances, is this the kind of thing that a minister would admit that would bring uh, at least him down, if if not the government? It seems to me that it, yeah, yes, and but why hasn't it happened? Maybe the point was made by Jeremy Rhyming Slang Hunt the other day, the health secretary, the first cabinet minister to broach the subject of that maybe Brexit won't happen. Uh, he was saying that um, if Theresa May falls, 
Brexit may not happen. So that's why it seems to me that all those people on the Brexit side are saying, um, you know, making menacing noises, but they don't really want anybody to, 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 to fall down because we then get possibly a Labour government which possibly calls a second referendum and possibly cancels Brexit. And not even people who are on the Remain side in, in the, the Conservative backbenches, they are probably thinking about their seats as well if there is another election. So maybe that it's, it's one of these things that you, it should be in normal circumstances, the sort of thing that gets you, forces you to resign. And we've, it's not the only thing in, the, in recent weeks where we've had that. It's just that nobody just wants to be the person who brings the whole house crashing down, apart from Jeremy Corbyn. Because I don't think I cannot see a way in which Labour government would go ahead with, with Brexit, except in its absolute softest single market customs union form. I mean, if Labour, if there was election and Labour won that election, I think that you know that this kind of Brexit that we fear most would just be off the table. Whatever, despite the constructive ambiguity that they're maintaining at the moment. The only question, of course, is that the that Labour government presumably would be read, led by Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, who are. In kind of lexiteers, if you like, they think the EU is a capitalist plot, and that um, you know the free market is 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 sort of untrammeled globalisation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Would, would they be overruled then? I think so. Yeah. We're starting to see you know Keir shifting quite some way. You know, he's been sort of been sidewinding around the issue over the last year, and then I suspect emboldened by the Servation poll last week uh, that put uh, Labour eight points clear of the Conservatives will have given them uh, some pause for thought as well as um, obviously we've seen the polls moving uh, in favour of a second referendum as well. So I think they'd be mad not to, but as you say, Jeremy Corbyn remains the, the stumbling block. Let's get back to the Irish border deal or lack thereof. It didn't seem possible for Theresa May's weakened government to look more disorganised or more farcical, but congratulations, Theresa, you pulled it off. <laughs> the border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic is the intractable problem of Brexit. Put in a hard border and you destroy the Good Friday Agreement, undoing 30 years of work and opening the door to the return of political violence, which is why Ireland would veto it. Stick with a soft border and you've got the back door to the single market, which makes a nonsense of any other hard European border. If you instead create a hard border in the Irish Sea, or hard-ish, then the DUP will veto it because they're propping up the government of the United Kingdom. And if you solve that problem by letting the entire UK remain in the customs union, then the Brexit headbangers will revolt. Each option appears to spell the end of Theresa May's premiership. So what, what's the way out here? Uh, well, there isn't. Her. I mean, you know, Prime Minister's questions time uh, on, on Wednesday. Theresa May just gets up and... I didn't. I didn't think Jeremy Corbyn did a good job of getting to getting her on the spot. He just made little. He did talk about Brexit. He, he, he actually talked, asked questions he made about Brexit. Little speechy bits, but he didn't really ask the right question that put her on the spot. And it was very easy for her to, for her to say, "Don't worry, everything's we're making." She said, "We're making very good progress." She actually said, "We're making very good progress." Nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. That's a new formulation, by the way. Uh, it's the, the the pretense that actually it'll all come out in one big bundle. Um, in a year's time or something, which, of course, isn't true. It's not what the EU is, has, has agreed to at all. They say, no, it is all it has to be agreed in p parcels, starting with these three points. But that's, that's the latest defence mechanism to say it's all going swimmingly. So this, this idea of um, creating this sort of uh, Irish sea border and they're having different kind of regulatory framework for Northern Ireland, obviously the DUP are against that. But then it seems to have sparked other kind of 
parts of the country, mm. including Sadiq Khan. Yeah, I can tell yeah. how serious he was about this, whether he was sort of, tr- sort of trolling slightly. Well, he's in <laughs> India at the moment, so um, you know, I'm glad that he's just even you know, keeping up with the time zone and, and getting involved. Look, Brexiteers told us during the EU referendum that leaving the EU would help strengthen the union of the nations of Scotland, England, Wales. Um, And with Theresa offering this Belfast opt-out, of course, it's no surprise that Scotland quickly piped up and, of course, uh, London as well. Um, But what next? You know, the emergence of an all-new, all-powerful kind of Celtic free trade area with Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Cornwall as members. I mean, it, it, it just beggars belief that she got as far as she did without wondering whether her coalition partners were going to have an issue with it. And the customs union being the kind of real sticking point here, on the day that David Davis says, well, we did a qualitative analysis, but not a quantitative analysis. Which doesn't seem like they kind of... And they just thought, they just said, we made a judgment. Supported by sod all, apparently. And this has now become the major problem Mm. here. This is going to be a real test of the Irish Taoiseach and the Irish government and how far they want to push it. I think the Brussels lot will be like, at pains to not be the ones holding up the talks. So they would probably fudge it and potentially just, you know, have a side channel for that Irish question to be debated. Um, So it's all about the Irish government now and whether they actually insist on it being resolved. Because if we stick our fingers in our ears and go, la, 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 it's not happening, it's fine, we'll just have to deal with it later. And it's how many of those things can stack up um, before it all collapses. But, Eloise, you've worked in... In Brussels. Um, and I, I sort of assumed that the EU really wasn't going to love having a frontier across which it would be relatively easy to like smuggle untaxed goods and particularly in a part of the world with a, a pretty uh, excellent history of organised crime. So do you think that that's not the case? They were, sort of, were prepared to accept that? I think the EU as a whole is lining up behind the Irish government in, on this issue, and whether it's security, whether it's smuggling. But I think as time goes on, depending on what that outcome is, if the rest of the countries then don't like it, they will absolutely weigh in. But for now, it's definitely Ireland in the lead. And actually, that's a, that's a good point that we need to reiterate. It's not just... Barnier or Juncker just no. sitting there mm. on his own like no. a sort of emperor saying yay or nay. All of this has to go through the 27 EU countries. Oh, and then and some. any yeah. one of them can <laughs> object. And we've got the three things. It's not just the Ireland border. It's mm-hmm. also the bill. there's the Brexit bill, which some some countries are big recipients of EU money. There's also the EU citizens' rights, which we'll be talking about later. And there are countries which will care about their nationals in Britain. So the idea that it's going to be fudgeable, I don't see how. So imagine if Theresa May hadn't <coughs> lobbed the DUP one and a half billion pounds to fuck things up. And imagine that they were not the obstacle here. Would this idea of a kind of Irish Sea customs border be good? Be a good idea? Was that was that a good solution, even if it had not been vetoed? Because it seems rather, it, it seems kind of rather messy and illogical to me. I anyway. think it would have been a, a workable solution. I wouldn't particularly have wanted it myself. But you imagine the situation that you do say, all right, effectively, Northern Ireland, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, stays in the customs union and the single market essentially economically integrates further with uh, the Irish Republic. Uh, Britain can then be out of the, definitely out of the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the customs uh, mar- union and the single market. And that works, that gets you through the next stage of uh, negotiations. But then you come to the trade deal. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, all it does is push the thing yeah. down the line a bit. When we come to doing the trade deal with the EU, either we will have to have all of this um, harmonisation or whatever you call it with the rules set in Brussels by the other 27 members, or we won't. Of course, the alternative would be to, you know, cuddle up to NAFTA and basically obey America's rules because, you know, then these are not these are not two-way negotiations. I just, just don't think it was workable yeah. because of Scotland. I think you know, it was never going to be workable because of Scotland. Yeah. And Wales also, they, they protested. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Even though they voted to leave in overall as a country. Yeah. Uh, but there you go. Yeah. And like the David Davis appearance, what, the, what this seems to have done, among many other things, is just reveal the, really the desperate state of the hardline Brexiters, that they're just people like Ian Duncan Smith, Rhys Mogg, just seem to go for kind of like ignorant anti-Irishness, accusing them of basically stirring things up because of internal political reasons, having misunderstood actually how Irish politics Mm -hmm. works. And there's just a kind of, again, just sort of like digging their heels Mm -hmm. in and and kind of trying to brush away any problem, however tangible, as just kind of somebody, as, as just sort of sabotage. And you think, well, how long can this, how long can this keep going? Is this working on people? Because it seems like, you know, when the referendum happened, I did at least think that there would be Brexiters who had some kind of intellectual and moral integrity. And much though I disagreed with them, you know, you could at least have a conversation with them. And I don't see that happening with the, with these hardliners at all. Or any kind of recent historical appreciation. The Good Friday Agreement ended three decades of violence in which nearly 4,000 people died. You know, we <coughs> used to have just 20 crossings across the border. We've now got about 275 uh, you know, they just seem to have absolutely no appreciation for how fragile the peace in Northern Ireland is and how much good work is going to be undone if this sort of thing goes ahead. And they've got no excuse because they're not 18. No, they it's were alive. Like, it's not like, you know, you know Duncan memory. Smith is just like, what? I don't generally remember that. I don't know, I was clubbing a lot of the time. It's like, <laughs> you, you remember this? It was in the news. There were like bombs. Maybe that's what we need to find out. What are they doing? What were they doing then? What are they doing now? I, d- I don't know how they're spending their time. Well, I do do remember that there were people who were against the Good Friday Agreement because it's, you know, treating with extremists. So maybe <laughs> some of those people, I don't know their individual histories on this, but there, were must, there must be some currents uh, towards the right of Parliament to, uh, of, of saying, well, we never, we never liked this peace thing all along, you know. Oof. Oof. Yes. We just had during the recording news that Philip Hammond has told the Treasury Committee that the Cabinet has had no discussions about the ideal outcome, the outcome of Brexit that they're aiming for. They've talked about the process, but they haven't actually talked about the end state that they're going for. This hasn't come up. I don't know why it just sort of fell off the minutes. They ran out of time. Like, This is the hilarious thing about transition. Everyone's obsessed with transition. No one knows where we're transitioning to. It's this, like, endless kind of conveyor belt towards a place that we do not know. And, I, you know, I don't want to kind of, you know, get repetitive here, but this is, I think, why I've come so hard into this sort of actually just stop Brexit thing because nobody, you, you can't vote for something when the people who are doing it admit that it's not what they said it was going to be and they don't even know what it's going to be. They haven't even yep. replaced it with anything. 
which is what the I forgive me I don't know which Irish politician said it last week but they said that you know Britain has come to us saying uh, effectively oh we want to build an extension um, and it, it, it we promise you it's not going to block the light into your house and we've said well okay that's fine can we just see the plans oh no no no, no we don't have any plans okay you don't have any plans oh in which case um, could, could, could we sort of see you know a, a bit of a sketch even just a vague outline no no I no, haven't got that but promise you it's, it's definitely not going to impinge on your light into your rooms uh, okay fine could, could you just give me that in, in writing just write, write that guarantee down that no no we won't do that either I mean it's a nonsense it's an absolute nonsense this is it's TBC Brexit the latest <laughs> style of Brexit <laughs> bit of virtual reality dunt for you there. Don't worry, listeners, Ian will be back from Antarctica in 2018 and he's promised to bring us back a penguin. It will squawk a lot and cover everything in crap. We're going to call it Nigel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is some good news because it looks like momentum is gathering for a second referendum. Of 1,000 people surveyed in a Servation poll for the Mail on Sunday, 50% said they would support holding a referendum asking the public if they will accept or reject the deal. Deal. They're very confident there will be a deal <laughs> to accept or reject. 34% were against. That's just one poll with a small sample size, but it is a significant result. Meanwhile, Labour seems to be warming to the idea. Shadow International Trade Secretary Barry Gardner told Sunday Politics this week that although a second vote was not current Labour policy, he couldn't rule it out. Two days later, Keir Starmer said we should put membership of the single market and the customs union back on the table, despite Corbyn whipping his MPs against those things, and the party's current commitment to ending freedom of movement. And if current Labour isn't your favourite Labour, then never mind, because old new Labour are back too. Tony Blair told The World this weekend that he's actively working to reverse Brexit and that voters deserve a second referendum because of the infamous NHS bus lie, among other untruths. When the facts change, the former ugly rumours frontman said, paraphrasing John Maynard Keynes, I think people are entitled to change their mind. Naomi, is, is, can Blair ever be an asset, or is the sort of stigma of Iraq so irremovable, it just tarnishes everything he says? It still is, yes. It's the, the problem with Blair is that the right don't like him because he's a former Labour Prime Minister, and the left don't like him because he didn't do enough lefty stuff in government and took us into you know the Iraq War. So who exactly does Tony Blair think Tony Blair brings to the table? Uh, no one. That's who um, at the moment. But he is very very rich. Um, but he is still very divisive. Um, you know he could end up. I think in terms of what what he could do for us is to use his money and keep quiet and be a sort of silent partner. He could he could fund organisations like Eloise's. He could he could if he'd want him. I don't know. Um, but but bank account details at the he, end of the show. He could be our Aaron Banks. Um, so I think the best thing that he can do is sort of you know join in a chorus with others. You know it's fine when it's him and Major and Brown and Cameron coming out to say stuff and sort of sounding like you know the, the old wise men. Um, but I think if he really cared, he would probably keep Stum for now. There may come a point when everything is. So awful. Uh, maybe we're only days away from that. That the oh Iraq War—that's nothing compared to what we've got now. Uh, but I, I, I do still think at the moment he he really doesn't add much. I do agree with that point you made. You know, in America, when you get something happens and you get all the former living presidents come out and say something, it seems to me that they add up to more than their individual reputations. And it's it says something that would be that would be a very good idea if he could talk to John Major and, and Cameron. So on. that that would uh, and, and Brown <laughs> Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. It's the way that George W. Imagine. Yeah, it doesn't seem as appalling when he's like standing next to Jimmy exactly. Carter. Yeah. Well, one of the thing I wanted to add is that that Servation poll, it was kind of unhelpfully constructed and reported, I thought, because what they said is, uh, would you like to have a vote on the deal? 
at the end, a majority, a plurality said yes. Mm. However, was the vote to accept the deal or cancel Brexit? Or was the, would the vote be to accept the deal or walk out with no deal? The, no, that wasn't said in the question. So you've got two lots of people being mm. bunched together. The people who are prepared to go for a no deal and the people who, like us, who want to stay in the European Union. However, there is a bit further down the Servation poll where they said, let's rerun the, uh, the first referendum tomorrow. How would you vote? It's now remain 48% same as last time, but leave is now 44.4%. Um, so there's basically, a, 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 that's at least a sign that there is a majority for remaining now. What was that about the respecting of the will of the people, by the way? I think that's quite important, isn't it? Not this will of the people. Oh, <laughs> oh I see. Oh, that's different. Then. The biggest um, issue we have right now is that most people don't understand that there's still a decision point in this democratic process, that there will be a vote in Parliament next autumn, and it's within the gift of this country to decide at any point up to March 2019 that we don't have to do this. Um, so that is something that we really need to get out there and have people understand. Because even though there's a majority of people that say, well, if I had to choose now, I'd probably want to stay in. There's a bunch of them that still feel a bit like compelled to go ahead with Brexit because of the will of the people mantra. So it's a really important point to to pick up on. I got a bit worried that it was a rogue poll because, mm. uh, you know, with a, with a rogue sample, because it was the same poll that showed this very generous eight point lead uh, for Labour over the Conservatives, which is out of kilter with all other polls. However, it is worth remembering that Servation were the only people that called it right mm-hmm. with their final poll ahead of the general election earlier this year. And they got that Labour vote spot on. Um, but today there was another um, poll out from the National Centre for Social Research uh, of 2,300 people. And that found that more than half of them expect Britain to get a ban deal from Brexit and that's compared to just um, th- uh, yeah that's compared to just a third in February so it's a huge move uh, towards people being very concerned that we're not going to get a very good deal out of this at all. So how gung-ho do we feel about a second referendum? Say that there was one how certain do we feel? I feel certain my certainty last year appeared to be worth absolutely <laughs> nothing but I mean I feel pretty confident that um, that Brexit would be rejected if that were an option in the second referendum. I think Eloise is right that there's still a bit more persuading to be done of the people who voted leave, that they have permission to do it. And the ideal slogan for that is... What is it now? If a democracy can't change its mind, it ceases to be a democracy. What wise man and who said, said that? that? Is that Ian Duncan Smith? <laughs> you know, it was David Davis. <laughs> so it must be right. <laughs> the other one. Yeah, I think we've got. Yeah, and it would be a third referendum. Let's not um, forget. We've yeah, had, oh, yeah, yeah. We've had uh, one to go in, one to come out, and so I think you know we need a decider. Why not? Best of three. Um, best of three. <laughs> That's how things are settled. Um, And I think we also have to remember Brenda from Bristol, who might not want more politics or might not want another vote. She might go uh, nuts if there's another vote. There might be a situation in which Brexit simply eats itself. It just cannot be done and it grinds to a halt and public opinion is sky high for uh, staying in. And the easiest thing to do is for a government to have a mandate to revoke it. And that might also happen if there's a general election with people standing on a very clear mandate of this is what we would do. So I think... Yeah, really important to listen to the will of the people. If the people want a referendum, let's do it. But if people just want to go, oh, for God's sake, make it stop. We well, also need Brenda, to have that option. On that Brenda from Bristol point, we've just been talking about a poll from Servation, which is a very professional, organised company that t- takes enormous, enormous 
um, efforts to find a representative sample of a thousand people and yet still reports in great detail the margins of error and so on. And yet here we are, like everybody else in the media, talking about one woman from Bristol who was just vox popped in the street and came up with a nice quote as if she represents anything apart from her own opinion. I don't think there is the evidence. Actually, people probably would like to vote on on balance more often, actually. I think Brenda was very compelling. I don't know. I feel like the the, the guy from um, Joe from YouGov, Tommy, said that most people voted in the referendum so that they would never have to think about Europe again. (laughs) And that this is actually, it's actually the big problem. It's this, you know, the intensity gap that we talk about. A lot of people are just so sort of disconnected and you don't know where that irritation with perhaps having to vote again is going to go is that people can be very perverse and they might just go well if you make me vote again even though it's a bad idea i'm going to vote the way i voted before just because i'm angry at having to do this again which seems ridiculous but would not be against human nature for people to do that. Well, here's, a, here's an idea. If we do have an election in a Labour government, Labour could phrase the question to make it sound like it's condemning the Conservatives. Um, so if you're angry, vote to keep staying in the EU because it's a Tory plot or something. I mean, wouldn't that work? <laughs> Good luck Just a that. suggestion. <laughs> Just a suggestion. OK, you've heard it throughout the show. It's our special guest, Eloise Todd, Chair of Best for Britain, Board Member of the Joe Cox Foundation and Honorary Romaniac. Eloise, one of Romain's problems seems to be at the moment is that there's no clear uh, sort of leaders or leader singular, whereas the other lot have, you know, Farage and Johnson for all their multitudinous sins. And I suppose your founder, Gina Miller, is sort of, to some people's minds, the closest there is to that, but that doesn't seem to be a role that um, that she sort of fully wants to take on. Do we need a sort of figurehead to win... I think we need lots of figureheads. We need people from across Britain, whether they're in business, whether they're in charities, in civil society, unions, to speak up. And the problem at the moment is there's a massive game of blink going on and people think that they can't actually say maybe we should stay in. It's like this big secret that actually it could be the best thing that we do, but no one wants to actually put their... Their, their head above the parapet on this issue. So it's left to people like us to say, hang on, maybe no Brexit should be an option on the table. And we've got to normalise that. We've got to make it normal to say that because we are living this, you know, Brexit is like a terrible relationship. You know, it keeps getting worse and worse every day, but it's so bad and it's been so incremental, you don't realise just how bad it's got. And that's what I fear is happening. Um, And we need people to kind of cop on, wake up and say, hang on a minute, enough. And I think the new year will be a good time for that. Well, I mean, people like David Davis are certainly helping that process along. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, does it feel like that there's been a sort of an acceleration in the last month, the last few weeks, you know, towards people just being able to go, let's just not do it? Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, Yeah. I, I think so. And I think, you know... Um, as Naomi said earlier, Keir's line has shifted. It's definitely shifting. On Wednesday, he did say on the Today programme, all options on the table for a single market and customers union. So they're getting there. But we have to get kind of a realisation that there could only be two clear choices for the country, which is totally mad Brexit or not doing it. Um, so... 
there's a really great intellectual debate and people like talking about the options and what version and is it Canada with a soupçon of Switzerland or is it a bit of Norway and you know do you like your Scandinavian meatballs and people love talking about that stuff but none of that is on the table what is on the table is well we sort of don't know but we know it's crazy and um you know, the other option is let's just not do this or let's find a way to get a democratic mandate to do that and give people the option. So. Well, because this is Brexit's gift to Remainers, to hard Remainers, really, is to just to sort of nuke the middle ground. Like you said, all of these kind of sensible things, which were actually discussed by people like, you know, Daniel Hannan and not just Daniel Hannan, but some of the, you know, the Tory ministers before the referendum and now just seem off the table. So yeah. it, really, it really has polarised mm. the options. But the more people talk about it as if there is a way to salvage it, the less it focuses on the fact that we're heading in this quite extreme direction. And to your point about, you know, who's going to speak up, I think, you know, the the atmosphere since the referendum was really, really difficult and strange. And the will of the people mantra terrified people. And I think the interesting uh, comparison is with the Mutineers Telegraph page, which actually I think, apart from the terrible consequences of giving some of those MPs more death threats, um, which is obviously serious and terrible, it actually backfired politically, it seemed to. People were like, ugh, that's pathetic. It actually makes them look pretty good. And they kind of, uh, they're almost held up as as heroes, if you like. Um, So... The power of the media to inflict the kind of fear that it did really from, you know, autumn of 2016 right through to the triggering of Article 50 just seems to have dissipated. And it's really hard for them, I think, to like to hold up, um, you know, that right wing mantra when the government is so shambolic. They're not their positions are not even making sense. So we have to make hay out of that. But we have to push business and we have to push business to speak up and say what they say in private publicly, which tens of thousands of jobs are going to go, hundreds of thousands altogether, probably in the millions when you add it all up. But they're doing it incrementally, drip, drip, and they don't want to create big public announcements because they're worried about the markets. But we just have to get them speaking up. And the same with unions as well, and civil society. So what are they afraid of? I almost understand what, for example, the Labour leadership are afraid of, which is losing large numbers of votes in sort of leave voting Labour heartlands. But what are these, uh, you know, the unions and the business leaders, what, do, what are they scared of? What, what do they think will happen if they did come out and say that? So from what I understand, business leaders simply want to have a smooth, uh, you know, orderly life between in the next few years. And they don't think that they can affect Brexit. And even if they thought they could affect it, um, they don't want to expend the political capital doing it because, frankly, they have to make their decisions, their business decisions now for the next couple of years. So they're like, well, even if Brexit doesn't go ahead, we've got to start planning now anyway. So for them personally or in their business, they are Brexiting. They are moving some jobs to Paris. They are organising themselves. And I think that has a big psychological effect on whether they'll actually speak up. Um, And they don't want to, weirdly, (laughs) um, you know, expend any political capital with the government. But the idea that, you know, if you can't, you know, force the government into a position when they're very weak, frankly, not going to last very long and uh, putting forward ridiculous positions. I think we've got to kind of push business to do an awful lot more. They've got a responsibility to. It's maddening to be in a time where there's just so many people, you know, are thinking something, but not saying it. Yeah. And, And therefore, public opinion 
will not change because the public are not mind readers. I think it has to be their New Year's resolution. And as they have a bit of brandy over the Christmas break and chill out a bit, they might actually get a bit more of a backbone. But if just can come to your point about you understand why um, Labour people might not want to speak out. The problem is that people aren't understanding that the Labour Party actually gained an awful lot of Remain votes during the uh, election earlier in the year. They basically can't outleave the Conservatives. And so the people that got them over the line, even in those so-called leave constituencies, and we don't know, by the way, if that map has changed um, since 2016, um, are actually Remainers. And it's really important to understand that because there's, there's the political calculus that the party's doing might mean, actually, that the place that they need to go for more votes is actually those that, that want to have a close relationship with the EU or stay in. Is it possibly that Labour are thinking that of the old Napoleon maxim that always gets brought out at these kind of times, never interrupt your enemy while he's making a mistake, that they're thinking, actually, let them let them show how bad it is and then we will choose the... I'm really sick of that. I just think that is cowardice and inaction and just a lack of principle. And it's just like, let him drive the car off the cliff and then we'll step in. And it's just like, why don't you step in before the car goes over the cliff? You know what I mean? It just seems to me like that there's a kind of there's a cheapness to that pure political calculation of let your enemy destroy themselves. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, yeah, but if they are wrecking the country in the process, then you are not serving your members, supporters, Constituents, like you know, at some you you can't leave it till the very last minute. You can't play kind of chicken with Brexit. That looks like that's what's happening, though, isn't it? <laughs> Finally, with all the focus on the Irish border question, it's been easy to forget that it's just one of three core issues that have to be settled in time for the EU summit on December fourteenth. One is money, which May seems to have solved by finding fifty billion euros down the back of the couch at number ten. But the massive issue of EU citizens' rights has been lost in the turmoil, along with those of British citizens living in the EU. MEPs and Remainers are worried that the EU will soften its stance just to get a deal by the time of the summit and that it will fail to insist that the European Court of Justice should have final say on these rights. Next Wednesday, 13th of December, the day before the summit, there's a demonstration and vigil for EU citizens' rights outside Westminster. It's under the banner, May They Stay, and our own Naomi Smith will be there. Naomi, what's the state of play with citizens' rights? In her Florence speech, uh, May made some warm noises to say that EU citizens who currently live here will have no changes to their rights once we've left. But since that Florence speech, both Johnson and Davis have sort of backtracked on that. So what we want is to stand in solidarity with our EU colleagues. So meeting at 8am in Trafalgar Square on (laughs) December the 13th, uh, which is um, the, the Wednesday before the next EU summit, to send a really strong message to the government that they have to go and uh, go back to Brussels and get us cast iron assurance on the cut-off date, so the date that they're going to use to say that people can stay and exactly what those rights are. Because these are three million people in this country. Many of them are taxpayers, job creators. You know, they're running our NHS. They're they're doing amazing, amazing things for us. And we need to guarantee their rights. So I think a few of our listeners live in London. Uh, If you'd love to join us, we'd love to have you. So that's 8am on the 13th of December in Trafalgar Square for a big stunt where blue and yellow will have some flags there for people as well. And we'll have this big hashtag May They Stay banner. uh, And to send the the government a really clear visual signal Signal that um, that we need to get a deal for EU citizens really, really quickly because they're leaving in their droves and they're starting to not come. Uh, we saw st- statistic uh, immigration statistics out last week that, that sort of proved this, and it's hurting our businesses. Why would the EU 
relax its stance? Why would the EU not fight sort of tooth and nail for the rights of citizens here? Well, I think they are. And Barnier met with the three million group um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and that seemed to go well. Um, But uh, frankly, for Theresa May, she really needs to do something to show some goodwill and build trust. And this is something she has in her gift to do, which is to offer unilateral rights separate from the British rights in in the European Union, but to give cast iron guarantee to our EU citizens already here uh, that they can stay. And I think that will really help her and strengthen her arm in some of the negotiations. So I think it's frankly madness that she's not done it already. And it would be repaid, surely it would be repaid. Exactly. And also, as I understand it, it's not going to be a majority vote, it's going to be all of the EU 27 countries are going to have to sign up to whatever the deal on migrants' rights is, and some of them will care about this. Mm. Some of them won't, but some of them will, and they're the ones who could could say no. Now that would mean no deal. But we've had guests on this show um, who are in this sort of state of limbo, even now, and it 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 does seem sort of outrageous that, that they haven't been able to solve it yet. And that brings us to the end of another show. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Eloise Todd for coming in. Uh, What can listeners do to support Best for Britain? Please sign up www.bestforbritain.org. It's really, really important to actually make your voice heard. And we promise that we will engage you and put you in touch with your MP and get you to do stuff at the most impactful times. Um, There is stuff you can do. All Romaniacs should be members and Please ask your friends too. It's quite nice to add a, a kind of little sprinkling of actual practical advice to the usual impotent fury cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Naomi Smith and Peter Collins as ever. We're going to finish up with Demon is a Monster, our smash hit theme tune by Corner Shop and the traditional roll call of some of our beloved Patreon backers. If you'd like to mention yourself, plus Romaniacs, mugs, bags and t-shirts, then please do visit our Patreon page via Romaniacs.com and pledge us a small contribution. Until next time, here's one of our international superstar sign-offs. It's Queen of Scar Rhoda Dakar of the Special AKA and the Body Snatchers, Showing off her bilingual talents. Au revoir, Theresa May, le premier ministre qui peigne la girafe. We'll see you next week. It's thanks from me to Maria Gerrels, David Vella, or maybe it's Veya if he's of uh, Spanish descent, Thomas Rawlings, Ros with a Z, Emma Quinn, Karen Sugru, and Aidan Fullwood. And thanks from me to Charlie Beaumont, Steve Lloyd, Haratini Farnell, Matt Williams, Steve Wooten, Rob Ives, Neil Younger, and Richard Skelding. Neil Younger. Neil Young's Neil Younger Younger. (laughs) Um, And for me, thanks to Tom Emery, Tim Mouncer, Mairead Deshpande, Iona Hamilton, Daniel Gallagher, Jamie Woodhouse, James Wilby and Adrian Allen. And remember, all it takes to get your name on the show is a tiny pledge to us via Patreon. Details at Romaniacs.com. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Peter Collins and Naomi Smith. The producers were Andrew Harrison and me, Matt Hall. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.